Welcome everyone to one of our BJJ podcasts for the month of November. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome back to you all from our team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As always, we'd like to thank all of you for your continued comments and support, as well as a big thanks to our many authors and colleagues who've taken part. We hope that you're continuing to enjoy our podcasts and all of our knowledge translation work delivered from your team here at the Journal. Our podcasts continue to focus on papers published each month here at the BJJ, as well as our accompanying special edition podcast series. So today I have the pleasure to welcome back my editorial board colleague here at the Journal, Professor Matt Costa from Oxford, to discuss their paper entitled Cost Utility Analysis of Surgical Fixation with Kirsten Wire versus Casting After a Fracture of the Distal Radius, a Health Economic Evaluation of the Draft 2 Trial. Welcome back, Matt. It's great to have you with us as always. Thanks, Andrew. So, Matt, the, the aim of, of this study in particular, the, the one that's published in the journal, was to compare the cost effectiveness of fixation with KYs versus a molded cast for adults following a manipulation of a fracture of the distal radius in an operating theatre setting, which is important, as we'll come on to, using data from the draft two trial. So, Matt, maybe as a, a background and maybe taking a, a step back, you know, for our listeners, can you give us a brief overview of maybe draft one? Briefly, a lot of them will know about it and then how this sort of led into to draft two. Sure. So draft one, crack it out, it seems like a long time ago now. It started out uh, sort of 13, 14 years ago, but it was a very a simple idea to compare locking plate fixation versus wire fixation for patients with a dorsally displaced fracture in whom a closed reduction was achievable. So that's important. It was If you couldn't reduce the fracture closed, then obviously it wouldn't be appropriate to wire it. So it was for those patients who had a closed reduction that was successful, of course, which was most of them. And much to my surprise, and the surprise of the Hans Society in particular, it turns out that if you can maintain the reduction, then how you hold it there doesn't really matter. So the wires gave very similar clinical outcomes to the plate fixation. But because, interestingly, all of the, the cost of resource use was linked to the use of the, the choice of implant, then the wires were much cheaper. And so it was cost effective to use wire fixation. And that led to a change in clinical practice in the UK, quite a marked one, actually, quite interestingly. And also a change in the, in the NICE guidance, so our guidelines on how to manage a broken wrist, which basically said, if you can achieve a close reduction, then you can use wires to hold it there and reserve plates for those patients who require an open open reduction. Yeah. So the uh, the follow-on from that was, well, if we can achieve a reduction, it doesn't matter which bit of metal we use to hold it there, do we need a bit of metal at all, or will a moulded close contact cast intervention provide similar outcomes? And that was the basis for draft two, which compared wire fixation for versus a plastic cast, basically a moulded cast for patients who where a, a closed reduction could be achieved. That's brilliant, Matt. And like I say, I think you, you always emphasize this when I've heard you talk about it as well, but it's those fractures that you can reduce close. And I think some people get a bit wound up about these things and, and think that, you know, it's not suitable for all fractures, but that's not actually what, what it says. It's for those fractures that you can reduce close and hold in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I still use plenty of plates in my, my clinical practice, as we all do, but I'm just a bit more selective and reserve those for where the, you know, the bits of the lunate fossil fragments are facing the wrong way and I, I need yeah. to open up the front of the wrist. And if I'm there anyway, to, to put a plate on, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, so it was reducing the indications for plates, but certainly not saying thread them out. Absolutely, absolutely. And so if we just briefly, before we go on to this, this paper, uh, draft two was recently published in the in the BMJ, and what what were the key clinical findings? I suppose uh, from that. Yeah, so I guess two really important bits of information. The headlines, if you like, were that if you can hold the reduction in the right place, it doesn't matter how you hold it there. So the patients who had wires versus cast ended up with functional or had the same very very similar functional outcomes, 
and quality allowed outcomes within the first year. So at each time point in that first year of, of follow-up. However, one in eight of the patients in the Plastocast group lost their reduction in the first couple of weeks afterwards. And everyone clinically will recognise that phenomenon. When the swelling goes down, the cast gets a bit loose and you can lose position. So not a huge surprise, but really important to quantify what proportion of patients ended up with that problem. So one in eight required a, a surgical intervention and usually then a, a fixation, of course, for their fracture. The corollary of that, of course, is that seven out of eight didn't need a, a fracture. And from a patient's perspective, that's not too bad odds to avoid surgery if you if you can. Yeah. But this is where the cost effectiveness comes in, because the, that degree of nuance is is important for the interpretation of the, of the resource use data as well as the clinical outcomes. No, absolutely. I think I think that it's nice that we've covered that already, because I think, like you say, when you're interpreting the, the, this paper, the cost effectiveness paper, knowing that one in eight number is actually quite important, isn't it? Because it has a, a implications for 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 how, how, how the costs and the complications, etc. So if we move on to this study, obviously, as I said, this is an economic valuation based on data collected from draft two. We know draft two, a multi, big multi-centre UK trial. So Matt, it may be... Uh, just as a, a, a going back again a step, just roughly the inclusion exclusion criteria for the trial. I know they're they're very clear from the original paper. Just just so that people know what sort of patients we're talking about here. Yeah, so we, we try and keep these as broad as possible. So the inclusion was basically if you were an adult, so anyone over the age of sixteen with a dorsally spaced distal radius fracture, and your surgeon, in conjunction with the patient, obviously decided that a manipulation was was appropriate, so the fracture was displaced, then you were included in the trial. Patients who were excluded, if a closed reduction couldn't be achieved, that was the key criteria. So all of the patients in the study were randomised after they'd had a successful closed reduction of that fracture. A few other exclusion criteria were used rarely. So open fractures, where the soft tissue injury obviously dictates the management much more. Patients who had extensions into the shaft, a, a different pattern of injury, and the only other serious inclusion criteria or important inclusion criteria was that patients who couldn't provide follow-up data yeah. were excluded. So patients with cognitive impairments, dementia and so on couldn't take part. But obviously surgical intervention in that group is relatively rare. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, and 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 Matt, just before we move on, so and as we've already mentioned, these are patients that like you say that the fracture was reduced close and it was in theatre and that's the point at which they were randomised. That's correct, isn't it? Absolutely. So in the, in this study, we, we learned a bit from the first draft trial. So I think surgeons were understandably cautious about randomising before they attempted reduction. Yeah. So we wanted them to be able to be confident they'd achieve a reduction before randomising to the two interventions. And obviously, if one of the interventions required a surgical implant, so wires mm. in this case, that had to be done in the operating theatre environment. So all of the patients were randomised in theatre once the reduction had been achieved. Yeah. Uh, most of them under general anaesthetic, some under regional blocks and, and so on, but all in an operating theatre environment. Excellent. Yeah, great. So if we just move on, before we talk about the results, just briefly about the sort of important data that are collected for this type of study. So how was sort of data on resource use collected and, and how did you sort of sort of assess and evaluate evaluation of costs that was done? Sure, yeah. So there's two key elements of the data that inform the cost effectiveness evaluation, obviously the, the outcomes for the patient and also the resource use. So we the resource use that we collect is as broad as possible, but the primary analysis based on what NICE look for, which is the National Health Service and Personal Social Service perspective. That's what the economists call it. So what does that mean? It's basically what the taxpayer is paying for. So everything in the NHS and everything that's paid for 
through social services in the in the community. We then add on to that what it costs the patients, so time off work and so on. So a broader societal perspective, but the primary analysis is based on the the NICE recommendation for the perspective that NICE recommends, which is about the NHS and personal social services. Yeah. In terms of how we collect the data, the within hospital data was collected by research nurses on the in the wards and in theatres and so on. So time in surgery, how many physiotherapist appointments they had, so on. All of that was collected through the research nurses. And then the extra resource use was collected from the patients directly at three, six and 12 months afterwards through a questionnaire where they say, have they required any extra home help? Have they required any other support at home? Have they been off work? And if so, for how long? And all of those data as well. Yeah, great. And like, as I know we've said before, Matt, and people who've been involved in trials, the health economic data collection is often the the vast majority of a of a an out, an out, of a booklet, isn't it? Really, in many ways, it is. It's, it's huge. So, just to, for everyone, so they're aware that you know we micro cost all yeah. of the resource use. So, not only do we ask what medication you've had, but it's how many pills and for how long, and yeah. then we cost each pill. Um, yeah. So it's quite a big burden for the patients to fill us in. And that's important yeah. to understand because uh, that affects obviously completion rates and yeah. how much missing data we have in there, which I guess we'll talk about. Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, you, you've sort of mentioned it already in terms of the importance of so the the valuation of health outcomes. And obviously, we, we, we people will have heard of the qualities and quality of life years again. But could you sort of very, very briefly before we move on, sort of give listeners a background to the sort of the nice effectiveness cost thresholds and how these were sort of employed within this study itself? Yeah, so the, the primary outcome measure for the, for the clinical trial was actually patient-reported risk evaluation, so pain and function at the risk. But you can't use that score and compare it across healthcare systems for different conditions. Mm. So the way that NICE asks us to collect outcomes from clinical effectiveness, so patient-centred outcomes, is through quality-adjusted life years. And we do that through a, a general health-related quality of life questionnaire. We use something called the Euroqual Five Dimensions, um, which is the most commonly used, certainly in Europe and actually increasingly around the world, to collect quality of life data. And it's basically five domains of health. So pain, can you look after yourself, daily activity of living, anxiety and depression, and so on. So it's a very broad measurement, and that allows NICE to compare and contrast cost-effectiveness across different conditions. So you can cost up someone having a heart attack versus someone having a stroke versus someone having a broken wrist and compare yeah. the effectiveness of different interventions. So that's why we, we use that particular outcome tool. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the thresholds that NICE often use, that the sort of twenty twenty thousand pounds is often the, the quoted for a quality. Is that is that right? Yeah. So the, the two bits of information then you've got the resource use, so basically what it costs, yeah. and then how much benefits in terms of qualities, quality adjusted life days you have, and then you can calculate a ratio for each intervention of what yeah. it costs per quality gained from that yeah. intervention. And the the new intervention, if you like, usually more expensive, but not necessarily, is compared to the standard of care. And then the difference in the cost per quality gives you this ratio that as you to judge cost effectiveness. So economists talk about incremental cost effectiveness ratios. Yeah. So I probably won't go into any more detail on no. that. No. And then each country, each healthcare system has to decide what it's willing to pay for one quality adjusted life year improvement. And that's where these thresholds come in. And NICE sets this at £20,000 per quality, mm. roughly. Mm. And that changes a little bit depending on the economy and so on. Within the study, we did what we call sensitivity analysis, where we 
that the primary analysis was based on £20,000 per quality. Is it cost effectiveness at that threshold? But we also did a, a subsequent analysis using £30,000 or £15,000, so a higher or lower value. Yeah. And that's hopefully to make it a bit more applicable to other healthcare systems that might pay a bit more or indeed a bit less for an improvement in, in quality adjusted life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's brilliant, Matt. And I think that gives the, the listeners a really good overview of how, uh, you know, it, it, sort of breaking down those nuances and, and, and those and those terms that we use. So moving on to the results of the paper, that just very briefly for our listeners, there were 500 patients randomly allocated in the trial, 255 received a CAS, 245 K wires. After manipulation of their fracture, the mean age, you know, in the two groups was 59 years and 61 years, respectively, which and the majority of trial participants were female and had an extra articular fracture, very consistent with standard sort of distal radius fracture epidemiological data. So first of all, we've already mentioned it briefly, but before we get onto the sort of the nuances of the results, you mentioned the word like completion rate. What was the completion rate of the health outcomes and resource use data for this for this study? And, and how did you sort of deal maybe with missing data? Sure. So there's always, because of the detail we're asking patients to complete, there's always some missing data. Now, quite remarkably, 58%, so over half of all the patients gave us a complete data set. So every single question was answered, which is quite amazing considering how much detail we're asking here. So that's a testament to an awful lot of work from the trial team to, to chase patients up and ask them, to fill out these questionnaires. The way we deal with missing data, though, is we with the primary analysis is using imputation, which I, I won't go into detail on that, mostly because I'll get myself in trouble with the economists. But it, basically, you take repeated samples from the data you have got and run those samples as though they're independent trials. Mm-hmm. And you do that thousands of times. And that gives you an overall estimate to how much effect missing data would have on the actual overall outcome. Yeah. Um, I've not explained that terribly well, but it's probably, probably the best I can do there. So that's yeah, that's how we deal with missing data. It's built into the primary analysis. And you can do that with clinical outcomes as well, using the same yes. bootstrapping techniques. But actually, it's most very commonly, it's the usual way of doing things for a health economic analysis, certainly in the UK. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like for many of our listeners, like you've already said, you know, almost 60% of patients having every field completed is i know it, it's, it's remarkable really in terms of the amount yeah. of data they've got to fill in and that's actually like you say that's every time point every data point whereas you know so you might have some at three months some at six months and and very variable you know return rates at that time won't you absolutely so yeah some patients reply at three months but not at six and then reply again at 12 yeah and yeah. um, so the data is monotonic i think is the term that yeah, the, the word economists yeah, use but yeah so we if the, any patient gives us any data we always include it in the analysis basically absolutely so if we go into sort of the key findings of the results briefly so what did you find you know the key th- things in terms of the healthcare and the personal service use rates and costs sure well as you probably expect most of the resource use is driven by the initial hospital episode Mm-hmm. So what it costs to actually have the, the surgery and then have the, the immediate care in the hospital. So whether it's day case or overnight stays. Follow-up was also quite a, a strong resource driver. So the amount of physiotherapy people had, the number of outpatient appointments they had and so on. And then a really important item was the secondary surgery. So we micro-costed up anyone that had to have a further operation further down the yeah. line. And what it basically shows is that it's it's slightly less resource use. Even with one in eight patients requiring a second operation, putting a cast on is slightly cheaper than it is to actually treat people with wires, but only a tiny amount, really. Yeah. On the quality of life side, there was no difference, essentially, at any time point. So yeah. really nothing at all there. So you've got the same qualities 
and a marginally cheaper intervention overall for the NHS and social care services. The differences out of the hospital in terms of social care use and time off work and the societal perspective were, were minimal. There was very little difference there. So the, the small cost differences were driven by the, the actual hospital care, mostly yeah. the, the first visit, so when they had the surgery. When they had the surgery, absolutely. And, it, and if you then take that forward in terms of the health utilities and cost effectiveness, what did that show? So the ratio really shows that, so at a, a willingness to pay of £20,000 per quality adjusted life year, so the nice threshold, it's unlikely that wire fixation is cost effective. There's only a 24% probability that yeah. it would be cost effective. So that's the headline figure is that it's it's unlikely that wires are a cost effective intervention for this particular problem, but there's some nuance associated with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, we'll come on to them. So I think well, we'll come to them now, actually, because I think that's a nice way to lead into it. So, you know, if we sort of draw that all together, you know, the, you know the, I think the strengths of the study, are, you know, a clear, huge, large UK based multicenter trauma trial, excellent design and execution as always. And, you know, a comprehensive collection assessment of resource use and costs associated with it. Very, very very nicely done and obviously very clearly robust analysis, which you can see from the study itself and the paper. And, and like you say, you know, with within this sort of uh, within trial economic evaluation of draft two, it, it indicates that like you say, manipulation and KY fixation is, is, you know, it's slightly more, more costly and doesn't really result in a significant increase in the qualities in comparison to a molded cast. And therefore it's unlikely, but to be of benefit, but you know, I think like there's a few nuances to it in there. And what, 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 I suppose, what were, what those nuances you'd want to highlight to the listeners, Matt, in terms of some of the things we've mentioned already. So with any health economic evaluation, you, you write an evaluation analysis plan. So the same way that with any trial, we write a statistical analysis plan to say up front what we're going to do with these data and how we're going to adjust it. So everyone knows that what we're planning to do and make sure we stick with the plan. And we do exactly the same thing with an economic analysis. We say what analysis we're going to do, and then we work from, from yeah. that date. That so essentially, we're playing a very straight bat. So what's reported in the paper is the absolute, what we said we do, and yep. these are the results. So it's not likely to be cost effective to use wires in this situation. But mm. the absolute cost difference is, is marginal. It's about £13, I think, yep. per patient. So if you take the patient perspective, if I'm going to an operating theatre and I need to have something done, they will accept that if that's the recommendation and they agree with mm. that. If they've got to go back again, though, that's quite a big deal. Mm. So it might be marginally cheaper for the NHS. But if I'm a patient and I'm in an operating theatre environment, and for the sake of £13, you can reduce my risk of coming back, well, frankly, I probably want the wires for yeah. yeah. And so for me, the outcome of this was that I would probably, if I, can, if I have to be in the operating theatre and I'm doing a close reduction and I've achieved that, then mm. I would, I'm going to put the wires in to save one in eight of my patients having to come back again. Yeah. So yeah. there's the headline result of the trial and then what that means in clinical practice. Yeah. The really important bit of information though is if you can hold them with a cast, they will get the same functional outcome. Yeah. So then the question is if we did the cast outside of an operating theater environment, then that of course will be hugely cost effective. So you've reduced the cost dramatically if you do it in the plaster room in, in outpatient department. But that wasn't the intervention in the study. So no. we're extrapolating from there. And everyone, all the listeners have got to decide whether they think that's a reasonable extrapolation of the of the study. But it's certainly changed. That's where my clinical practice has gone and my colleagues in Oxford. And 
I think lots of the other hand centres are moving in that direction as well, of attempting to close reduction and close contact casts outside of the operating theatre. And then if you're going to theatre, then it's probably better for the patient overall to have some sort of fixation yeah. of the wrist. And I think that's really interesting, Matt, and a really nice way to put it. Like you say, it's sort of like you can always look at just the headline result of the trial, but actually there's how you adapt that to our day-to-day clinical practices. Do you have a feel of what the patients would want, you know, in terms of, yeah. you know, because, I mean, I, you know, I, I think you could get a variety of responses there in terms of some would say, I, I want it reduced, but I don't want any wires in it, or, or vice versa. I just want the definitive treatment now and I don't want to have to come back. So, no, yeah, absolutely. So. And, well, it's really interesting. And we, we've done we've done a lot of patient experience yeah. uh, work across loads of trials for quite a long time now. And one of the very consistent messages, whether it's a broken leg or a hip or a wrist, is that the only people that think surgery a good idea is surgeons. So patients generally want to avoid going to an operating theatre. It was interesting, some of my colleague Dan Perry's work with the children is that the parents on behalf of their children, that's an even bigger Mm. bigger issue because handing your child over in an anaesthetic room and then being escorted out of the room and leaving them there is a huge issue for the patient. So avoiding surgery is massive. So they will accept all kinds of things you would think you know, empirically, they wouldn't want the child to have a wonky-looking wrist. Yeah. But if it avoids an operation, and there's a hope they will remodel, the patients is happy to take part. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with the broken wrist, that patients, who are particularly the older patients who are the predominant, you know, patient group for disarrhythmia fractures, were not afraid of surgery. So they no. said, if it needs doing, it needs doing, that's fine. But if we can avoid going to an operating theatre, then that's what we want. That's yeah. empirically what we want. And that was a really clear message when we ask the patients about their interpretation of the trial. And so that appears in the patient-facing materials quite quite clearly that they, they want to avoid surgery if they can. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. And in, in, just a, f- a final few questions. In terms of, you know, you know, we've talked about the strengths, you know, are there any sort of limitations to the study or anything you would have done differently in, in hindsight, maybe? Yeah, so we, we made a, a choice up front to do the randomization in theatre after the reduction was achieved. And mm. that committed us to being in the operating theatre. So I, I guess that's the key thing, really. Now, the win from that was that we include the, the surgeons were already happy about the reduction before they were randomized. Yeah. So that's clear. <laughs> the downside is, of course, that you drive up the cost by just being in an operating theatre. Yeah. So we have undenied about whether we need to repeat this study looking at manipulation and casting in, in the Fratch clinic to see yes. whether that actually gives you equal result. The difficulty is that since we've started doing that in Oxford, and I know you guys have in, in Edinburgh as well and, and lots of other centres, using finger traps and having a bit of patience and getting the plaster text to put a cast on, most patients don't even require analgesia, never mind nerve blocks or anaesthetics and things. And so I'm struggling now a little bit to know whether ethically I w- would be able to randomise patients to go into an operating theatre versus having that manipulation done in in the plaster room. And we're not talking about hematoma blocks in ED, which I think, frankly, is torture, but it's still done a lot, I know, but it's really not a pleasant thing to witness, never mind to do. This is a controlled environment with people who do it every day, and I think that's the way forward. So, I mean, we've got a protocol written for that trial, actually, Mm -hmm. to look at doing it in the operating theatre versus outside. But whether we can ever do that, whether... The community thinks that's acceptable. I'm, I'm not sure. We'll have to discuss that over the coming months when the trials really settle down and people have digested it. Oh, absolutely. I suppose that would be the that would be the the, the trilogy, though, wouldn't it? That would be draft three <laughs> potentially. Oh, don't worry. We've got draft three. That's another right. one. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, draft three is just about to start. Yeah, yeah. This is for the patients who haven't haven't needed a manipulation. So, yeah. 
if the patient's been undisplaced, something with displaced fractures, we're going to randomise them to a, a cast versus a, a removable splint. Yeah. And then discharge the patients in a removable splint to mm. see, should check they're okay. So it's a non-inferiority trial. Coming to a hospital near you very soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that'll be, and that'll be fascinating because if one of the real other things we've learned a lot from the patient feedback and particularly during the pandemic was they don't want to be in hospital unless they absolutely have to be. So uh, a pathway of care that allows them to manage themselves at home, remove their mm-hmm. own splint, is something they're very keen on, but only if it's safe. And that's what we yeah. need to. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think you're right. I think actually, and I think empowering the patients to to lead their care is, n- is not a bad thing in many ways. I think some people do need our help, help and intervention, but actually I think we've assumed for a long time, they do always need to come back to us. And that, <laughs> that's just not necessarily the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's they're just inconvenient for them. And it's more for our benefit maybe than theirs sometimes, but no, well, I think that's, Mama, that's great. I'm, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but so thank you so much for joining us as always. And congratulations on, a, on another outstanding study that's again further added to the literature in this area and it was always great to have you with us thanks Andrew and to our listeners we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through social media like feel free to tweet or post about anything we've discussed here today and thanks again for joining us take care everyone